Welcome to the Sports Lodge, where sports, entertainment, and pop culture merge within the mind of your host, Roger Lodge. What a thrill it is to welcome in here on the Sports Lodge podcast, one of the most successful broadcasters ever, a man that has covered just about everything there is to cover. We're talking Olympics, Major League Baseball, the NBA, the ABA, the NFL, boxing, the U.S. Open and golf. And of course, one of my all-time favorite shows later on NBC. And along the way, he has racked up a ridiculous 23 Emmy Awards. And he's been named National Sportscaster of the Year eight times. Wow, I got class clown. That's my big award. Here he is, <laughs> ladies and gentlemen, Baseball Hall of Famer. He is Bob Costas. Bob, how are you, my friend? Roger, how you doing? You know, it doesn't seem that long. I think it was Vin Scully who said, it's just a small blink of an eye between an all-star game and an old-timers game. And it doesn't seem that long ago when I was continually referred to as an irreverent young newcomer. Elevator races on Letterman, this, that, and the other thing. And now... I'm a legendary, supposedly legendary elder statesman. That's how quickly it goes by. <laughs> well, I'm not even going to try to act cool, calm, and collected here. I'm absolutely thrilled and honored that you're my guest here on the Sports Lodge podcast. So let me just start by saying thank you so much for being here. Now let me get to this. Which Emmy was more rewarding, Bob? The first one back in 94 or number 23 just a couple of years ago? Well, you went to the wrong Wikipedia page. Oh. <laughs> uh, the first one was sometime in the 80s, and, and the most recent one was number 28, so you shortchanged oh me Oh, my five. God, what is going I'm on? This is saying, terrible. I'm just saying. <laughs> I, I would say the first one was the most rewarding because it was the first, and it was not anticipated. Um, at that time, the sports Emmys were televised. Alan Thicke was the host. And they were televised, live. So it was even more thrilling. Everybody really dressed up, and uh, it had a different feel to it. I mean, they were all wonderful, but that one was the first one, and it was televised, so it had something on the others. Bob, what's tougher, getting to the top of this wild and wacky industry or staying on top of this wild and wacky industry? You know, this is not a coy or disingenuous answer. I never viewed it, never, as... I'm at this rung of the ladder, now I have to move up to the next and the next. I never viewed it that way. The only thing for sure that I wanted to do when I started out was to call basketball and baseball. And at first I thought that would be on the radio, because that's where I started in Syracuse and then later in St. Louis. I never had a specific plan other than to do as well as I could with whatever assignments I was lucky enough to have. And I was never looking over my shoulder at anybody else or saying, what do I have to do to hold on here? Uh, there was never anything political about it. I was lucky enough to be given good assignments, and I guess I did them reasonably well. So I never felt any insecurity or anything. I just thought I'll do this as long as I want to do it, uh, unless somebody has a different idea. And it played out pretty much that way. Bob, you and I share such a love and passion, even a romance, if you will, for the game of baseball. I fell in love with it listening to the great Dick Emberg on my little green transistor radio that was strategically tucked under my pillow late at night. And I hung on every pitch delivered by Nolan Ryan, Clyde Wright, or Frank Tanana back in the 70s. 
Dick Emberg was so amazing at painting a picture so vivid for me. I could almost feel the heat of the Ryan Express and the speed of Mickey Rivers going first to third on a Bob Oliver opposite field single to right. Dick Emberg was so my guy. He felt like a friend to me. Yeah. Uh, I was eight years old at the time. Who was your guy? Who was your first friend that you couldn't wait to hear on your radio? Mel Allen, who was the voice of the Yankees. And then later, although Red Barber's greatest fame and his greatest significance historically is as the Dodgers announcer, Red Barber later joined Mel. So it was Mel and Red in the Yankee booth. And then later, only a bit later, Marty Glickman, who's not that well-known nationally, but regionally and around New York, uh, truly revered, practically invented the way basketball should be called on both radio and television, and Marv Albert was kind of his apprentice and took it from there. So a little bit later, I was listening to Marv. And for two years in the early 1960s, when I was 9, 10 years old, we lived in Southern California. So I was one of the countless kids and adults, I guess, who had the transistor radio. But the trick for the kid was, mom and dad said it's bedtime, uh, but you put the transistor under the pillow and you listened to Vin Scully and Jerry Doggett. And of course, Vin is the gold standard and will forever be the gold standard for that kind of baseball broadcasting. But when you mention Dick Enberg, uh, I think of all the things that Dick did nationally, baseball wasn't a big part of it. So a lot of people who admired Dick for a thousand good reasons probably don't realize how good a baseball announcer he was, great baseball announcer he was, uh, in those days with the Angels that first captured you. Yeah, he was absolutely extraordinary. And when he and Don Drysdale were together, the chemistry, Bob, was so tremendous that they put him on Ram telecasts together. They were Big D, Don Drysdale, was doing football out here in Southern California. I guess my question is, Who's the guy that you've worked with over the years where you just had the instant chemistry, that thing you can't teach? You know, I've been lucky enough to be able to call this a multi-way tie. Outside of the play-by-play booth, I clicked with Ahmad Rashad so immediately, and I have such fondness for him. Uh, We're such close friends. It was so touching to me. Ahmad was overseas and got back the morning of last summer's Hall of Fame inductions. And yet he got himself from New York City, jet-lagged and all, got himself to Cooperstown, and then had to turn around and go back that same night. Um, When you have that kind of relationship with somebody, uh, you don't need a script. You don't need to say, I'll say this, and then you'll say that. You can just take it and wing it. So Ahmad is one. In the 80s, Tony Kubek and I formed, I think, a very good team. And partly because we were different. Tony was deeply analytical, and I was appreciative of that, but I was more anecdotal and a little bit more irreverent. I was quite young then to be doing games on national TV. And for whatever odd yin and yang reason, we complemented each other. Uh, Later on, I'm in the baseball booth with Bob Uecker, uh, and I had known Uecker for a really long time, just as friends. So... I knew how to set him up for some of his great deadpan lines. And then Joe Morgan would provide uh, the more analytical view, and I think that was a good combination, too. And I've always believed, with all due respect to others, and there are many I enjoy, I've always believed that Doug Collins was the best NBA analyst ever. 
And the three years that I filled in when Marv Albert was sidelined, the three years that I moved from the studio and hosting the NBA to doing play-by-play of the NBA, I was with Doug. And he and I, again, talk about a friendship. I had dinner with him uh, just last week when I was in Chicago. You just click with a person personally, more so than professionally, and then the professional kind of flows from there. So there, there's four, and I've probably left some people out uh, who deserve to be mentioned. I'm getting off a plane a few years ago, and uh, as I get up and, you know, you gather your stuff and you head to the center of the plane, I'm on the right side of the plane. On the left side of the plane, I noticed, and he had been there the whole flight and I didn't see him, was Doug Collins. So I get up and I'm looking right at him, and I go, oh, my God, you're the pride of Illinois State. And he looked at me and said, oh, my God, you're the host of Blind Date. It was one oh, of the, my God. It was one of the big thrills of my career, Bob. It was unbelievable. <laughs> <laughs> Blind Date was kind of on the edge back in the day. Now yep. it seems almost quaint, right? <laughs> exactly. But, but my point is here, and like you just described, Doug Collins and Ahmad Rashad, Ramad Rashad, who you have such affection for, I mean, the kindness for those guys is just off the charts. How important was it for you throughout the years that the people you worked with were good people? Very, very important. Very important. You know, as much as I was kind of phasing out when it came to football, and my role in Sunday Night Football was not nearly as essential as Al Michaels or Chris Collinsworth or Michelle Tafoya, just being on the road with those people, going to dinner on Saturday nights before the Sunday game, Fred Gidelli and Drew Esikoff and that whole crew, uh, the absolute cream of the crop when it comes to sports production of a live event. It, it was so much more enjoyable, not just because of the games. I, I really wasn't that into the games by that point uh, in my career. I'm talking about football, not about other sports. But I was certainly into hanging around with those people, and I certainly appreciated their work, and, and we'll, be friends, we'll be friends forever. And backtracking just a little bit, I guess if there's somebody that I have to give the most credit to, because it was early on, it would be Kubek. You think about Tony Kubek. He played on seven Yankee pennant winners, teammate of Berra, Mantle, and Ford. And then he was already an institution in national television broadcasting of baseball. He'd worked with Kurt Gowdy. He'd worked with Joe Garagiola. He'd done the Game of the Week and the World Series. Vin Scully comes over. And it's natural. They did the right thing. They paired Vin with Joe. That was a great Hall of Fame booth, and they had many great moments that are indelible. But Tony winds up with me on the so-called backup game. He could have treated me like, you know, something stuck in his shoe. But instead, he embraced me right away. And that elevated me. Not just elevated my performance, but elevated the perception of me to the national audience that wasn't nearly as familiar with me as they were with Tony. So I probably owe more to him now that I think about it than any of the others. Bob, let me backtrack, if I may. And speaking of indelible, your Hall of Fame speech that I witnessed in person, by the way, last summer. Why? Well, whoa, why did I not see you? Because I was way, way out in the back. I couldn't get up close, but I was there and I was hanging on every single word. And Bob, I swear... I swear to you, I swear to Pistol Pete, who is my God, this is a true story. As I stood there and listened to you, I was almost in that 1962 Ford Galaxy that you described when you sat in the garage listening to games because the reception was somehow better in the garage than it was in the house. Well, it was the driveway, not the garage. I wasn't trying to commit suicide. (laughs) 
accidental asphyxiation while, while trying to pick up Harry Carey and Jack Buck on KMOX. Okay, for the people who haven't heard your Hall of Fame speech, take us through that sitting in the driveway in your 62 Ford Galaxy and how that meant, how much that meant to you at a very young age. Well, my dad was a compulsive gambler. Um, he didn't go to the track for horses. He didn't go to casinos. He bet on ball games. And you could see the Yankees. You could see the Mets. If the Knicks were on TV or on the radio, you could uh, watch or listen to that. But you couldn't pick up out-of-town games. There wasn't even sports phone then, let alone ESPN or the Internet or various ways to track your bets. So he would send me out to the car where radio reception was usually better than in the house. And he'd ask me to find out what the Cardinals and Reds were doing. You know, it's kind of sporadic. You're watching the Mets and maybe Lindsey Nelson and Bob Murphy get around to checking the out-of-town scoreboard. But when you've got a grand riding on the outcome, you can't wait 20 minutes. You want to know. So he sends me out to the car, and I became expert at fiddling with the dial. As I put it, I calibrated the dial like I was a safe cracker. And I knew just where WLW in Cincinnati was. I knew where I'd find Ernie Harwell on WJR in Detroit. I knew where I could find Chuck Thompson on WBAL in Baltimore. Uh, it was tougher, but if the atmospheric conditions were just right, I could pull in KMOX and hear Harry Carey and Jack Buck. And so I'd find the game, sometimes through crackle and static. I'd get the score. I'd listen for a while longer because not only did I love baseball, but now I was falling in love with the rhythms and the sound of baseball. And... That was really, I think, what hooked me on sports broadcasting, uh, the romance of being one of those voices in the night. And then I'd get the score, and I'd go back inside, and I wouldn't just say to my dad, Cardinals 3, Reds 2, bottom of the fourth. I'd give him a detailed account of how it became 3-2. This is amazing, Bob, because you're talking about first honing your reporting skills as you would take notes and give your dad a full report on these games. Full disclosure here, my biological father left my mom and us four kids when I was about five years old. So when my stepdad came along, who was working in sporting goods and was a huge sports guy, I used to write up a sports report and leave it on his pillow at night because I wanted him to like me so he wouldn't leave me like my first dad did. It's amazing that we kind of did the same thing. My question is, how was your relationship with your father, John? It was rocky. Uh, he was a volatile guy. Um, by the way, I'm touched by the story you just told. I, I didn't know. And, you know, sometimes people, I'll get back to your question, but sometimes people roll their eyes when uh, they hear about the connections between fathers and sons through sports or now mothers and daughters. Um, and they think it's corny or whatever. But... There's so much truth in it, and very often it was the primary and sometimes the only connection. Uh, so my dad was volatile. If his bets or something else were going the wrong way, uh, he could be rough to be around. Um, and we didn't really have that much in common. He was a guy who could take a car apart and put it back together. If you gave him the time and the resources, he could build a house himself. I can't screw in a light bulb, 
I'm the least mechanically inclined person you'd ever meet. <laughs> you know, all the things that he valued, I wasn't really good at. He, wasn't, he read the papers every day, and he was a very intelligent guy. He was an electrical engineer. But I seldom saw him read a book. And I was a reader from the time that I learned how to read, the time I was six or seven years old. Here's what we had in common. Sports in general, baseball in particular. So that, that, was, that was my way in with him. And it was, it was the bond that, that brought us together. You know, men from that era didn't often say, I love you. They expressed it in, in different ways, little nods of approval, arm around the shoulder, that kind of thing. And I remember all those times with my dad, and so many of them were connected to sports. Wow, great stuff, Bob. By the way, did that 62 Ford Galaxy turn out to be your first car? No, no. By the time I uh, got a driver's license, so what would that have been? Um, around 1969, when I was 17, it was a Buick Skylark. My dad gave me his used Buick Skylark. That became my first car, and then he went and got a new car. Wow, 69 Camaro here for me. By the way, I, I also loved your story in Cooperstown as you accepted that Ford Frick Award about you listening uh, listening in as Earl Gillespie, the old Milwaukee brewer announcer, would describe a 42-year-old Warren Spahn going head-to-head against a 23-year-old Juan Marichal of the Giants. A 16-inning pitcher's duel, Willie Mays homer to win it in the bottom of the 16th. I will never, Bob, as long as I live, forget a 15-inning marathon affair that I watched in the top deck of Angel Stadium. A duel between Nolan Ryan and Luis Tion, Louis Tion, when Ryan went 12 innings through 246 pitches, El Tiante went all 15 for the Sox that night, and the Angels won it when Denny Doyle doubled home Mickey Rivers in the bottom of the 15th. And by the way, Cecil, Cecil Cooper went 0 for 8 with seven strikeouts. But my question here is... But the game didn't make an impression on you at all, did it? And that's exactly my question, Bob, because... I remember that game like it was yesterday. Why do so many of us have this romance with the grand game of baseball more than the other sports? What is it about baseball? Well, baseball at its best, and this is a problem in the present era, but at its best, it has a pleasing, leisurely pace. And even a broadcast of a baseball game sounds fundamentally different than other sports. Uh, it's conversational. It's anecdotal. History matters more in baseball. Records matter more in baseball than other sports. They're touchstones. That's why the steroid era uh, was more of a problem in baseball than in football or other sports, because the record book was poisoned and distorted. So you just have all these different elements to it. Others have perhaps done a better job of describing it. You know, go read A. Bartlett Giamatti or read Roger Angel um, or countless others. There's, there's a word that you sometimes hear, at least from people of our generation or older, um, connected with baseball that you don't often hear with other sports. Fondness. I've never heard someone say, I feel fondness toward football. Uh, it's just a different thing. You know what's actually the best explanation, now that it pops into my head? George Carlin. Just go get George Carlin's baseball versus football monologue. It's brilliant, like everything he did. 
The mastery of language is off the charts. But the point, besides the laughs, the point is absolutely valid. He nails the difference between baseball and football. Oh, that's how, of, how it's more human. It's just more human. That's one of the great comedy bits, man. George Carlin, of course, a master at what he did. But going back to our love of the game and how it all started, I, is, again, I'll never forget my first major league game and the circumstances surrounding it. Summer of 68, Bob, imagine this. My mom drops me off in her old Chrysler station wagon with the different shades of brown paneling along the side. No no seat belts anywhere to be found, by the way. It was pretty much a death trap. But anyway, I'm going to my uh, Little League practice in Bloomington, California. I was on the Oilers. Purple hats with a bold white O on the front. Mm -hmm. We start to play catch to warm up. Coach Gill announces to the team, instead of practicing baseball today, we're going to watch baseball. So we all jumped in the back of his pickup truck, jumped up the 10 freeway. We headed to Dodger Stadium where I watched the Dodgers' Claude Osteen scatter 10 hits and outduel Phil Necro. Both errands occupied the corners of the Braves' outfield that night. Tommy went one for four. The hammer was hitless. Anyway, I'll just never forget how bright green the grass was. I was instantly hooked as I sat there and watched the game on my yeah. with my uh, carnation chocolate malt with the wooden stick. Let me go back to 1959, a little Bob Costas at his first game, and according to my exhaustive research that is 0 for 2 so far, I'm thinking 1959 Yankee Stadium, that's your first major league game. Am I right there? You're essentially right. It's the first <laughs> one where I remember any details. My dad took me in 1957 to a game at the Polo Grounds. So this is the year, the last year for the Giants and the Dodgers in New York. And all I remember about that game, we were up at the back end of the grandstand, and the polo grounds was so massive, and I'm sitting on my dad's shoulders so I can see over the people. And I just remember kind of the swirl of cigar smoke and the people, yeah, Cracker Jacks, beer here, that kind of thing. And I don't remember any specifics of the game except my father pointing out Willie Mays. Look, look, Bobby, see him? No, not that one. The guy in the, the, the one in the middle. That's Willie Mays, as if as if a father was saying to his son, "See this son? That's the Washington Monument. That's that's um, the Grand Canyon. Take take note." Even then, he I guess he viewed Willie Mays as some sort of baseball treasure or a national treasure. Uh, take note, you're looking at Willie Mays. That's the only thing I remember about that game. Two years later, I'm seven years old, and I go to a game between the Orioles and the Yankees at Yankee Stadium, the last weekend of the season. It was one of the very few years in the 40s, 50s, and through the mid-60s that the Yankees did not win the pennant. So they're just playing out the string. The White Sox won the American League pennant that year and lost to the Dodgers in the World Series. Uh, so my cousin and I are taken to the game by my dad, and I was struck by just what you mentioned and what millions of kids from our generation uh, have the same memory of which is walking into a big league ballpark for the first time after just following games on the radio or the occasional game on a black-and-white TV. And it's like the scene in The Wizard of Oz where it goes from black-and-white to technicolor. You walk up that ramp and you're struck by the emerald green, by the gleaming white of the batter's box, the bases and the baselines uh, that... 
that the warning track and, and the dirt around the on-deck circle is more like a burnt ember, uh, like a rust orange sort of, than it is the brown that it later appeared on color TV. Everything about it in Yankee Stadium, the lattice work of the facade um, had a cathedral-like feeling to it. So it was so, it was so overwhelmingly wonderful that it was, you know, for kids of our generation to say it was close to a religious experience, it kind of was. Yeah, the wall at Fenway, the ivy at Wrigley. What ballpark do you still walk into, and you kind of have to stop and just take it all in because it's still pretty amazing for you? You know, you named them. I did a game last week on Friday at Fenway, Astros-Red Sox. And then the following Monday, three days later, Phillies-Cubs at Wrigley Field. There are a lot of new ballparks, all of them with retro-type designs, San Francisco, Pittsburgh, Camden Yards and Baltimore, and others, that are really good on their own terms. But what they can never have is the truthful aspect. Somebody sat here and watched Babe Ruth. (laughs) Somebody sat here and watched Ernie Banks. You just you don't have that on any of the new parks, but you still have it at Wrigley and Fenway, and the ownership of both those franchises have done an excellent job of modernizing the park, putting in as many modern conveniences as possible, and some revenue-sharing aspects, revenue-producing, rather, aspects, like the monster seats above the wall and left field at Fenway, without changing any of the essential character. You walk into Fenway, and it feels just like the first time I walked into Fenway. Same thing with Wrigley Field, except for the fact that the first time I walked into Wrigley, there were no lights. Uh, there were all day games. And then in the late 80s, the lights came in, and everybody thought the world was coming to an end. <laughs> <laughs> but we survived it. Hey, we talked about Dick Emberg earlier calling Nolan Ryan and Clyde Wright pitching for the Angels. Clyde Wright and his wife, Vicki, have become dear friends over the years. I do afternoon drive radio on AM830 here in Southern California. It's the home of the Angels. I stay on, do the pregame show. I've even gotten a couple of reps as a fill-in, play-by-play radio announcer for our guy, Terry Smith. It's, it's still so surreal for me whenever my cell phone rings and I look down, and it's Clyde Skeeter Wright, the only lefty in franchise history to win 20 in a season, and the guy that fir- uh, threw the first no-hitter out here at Angel Stadium. He's, he's become a friend. My question is, who was that guy for you? Idolized him as a kid, became a dear friend, and sometimes you had to pinch yourself because you were hanging out with him. You know, I'm saying this. Because you asked, not to name drop, my number one guy was Mickey Mantle. Uh, I had a cousin, the guy I mentioned, going to that first game with in 1959. is a couple years older than me. His guy was Willie Mays because he was old enough to remember him a little bit before the Giants went west. But when I first became aware of baseball, the Giants and Dodgers had left. The Mets didn't exist yet. It was only Yankee games on the radio and on black-and-white TV. And Mickey Mantle was clearly, Ted Williams was during the end of his career, Mickey Mantle was the greatest player in the American League, just as Hank Aaron and Willie Mays were the greatest players in the National League, with Stan Musial wrapping up his career. So it was only natural that Mantle would be the guy I would gravitate toward. And then, long after he had retired as a player, I interviewed him a few times on NBC, Um, and then ultimately we became close enough friends that he asked me to do the interview when he came out of the Betty Ford Clinic 
and his family asked me to do the eulogy. Just as many years later, uh, Stan Musial lived into his 90s, because of my St. Louis connection, Stan's family uh, asked me to do the eulogy at his service. And along the way, I'm just lucky enough, Willie Mays, Hank Aaron, um, pretty close relationships with them as well. So there's your bubblegum cards come to life. Absolutely amazing. And by the way, speaking of the eulogy that you did for Mickey Mantle at the request of his family, I'll always remember your description that he was a fragile hero to whom we had an emotional attachment so strong and lasting that it defied logic and that Mickey himself didn't understand it. Do you think Mickey Mantle left God's green earth oblivious to just how many people idolized him and how much he meant to so many because Bob that would be incredibly sad to me if that was the case I'm happy to report that the answer to that is no Um, for most of his life he was befuddled by it for two reasons he was naturally shy and humble Uh, most outgoing when around his teammates or people he knew well but then also he was tortured by what he felt were his shortcomings and he didn't feel he necessarily deserved all that adoration. But upon going to the Betty Ford Clinic and uh, having to recount some of his life, that's part of the program, and then receiving thousands of letters from people ranging from little kids to 90-year-old baseball fans, he told me several times in just the short time as it turned out he had left, after leaving the Betty Ford Clinic and thinking he turned his life around, but then the problems with his liver arose, and he was gone shortly after that. But even in that short year and a half or whatever it was, uh, he told me many times that he understood it now. He got it, um, that he didn't have to be perfect to have figured in a really wonderful way in so many people's baseball memories. He accepted that. What was Mickey Mantle, when you, were, when you would spend time with him, was, was most of your conversations baseball-related, or what else was he into that maybe you'd like to discuss with him? He was into country music, and he, which is not my strong suit. I mean, I know a bit about it. If, if, it, if it had been 50s, 60s, 70s rock and roll, I would have been all over it. But, but he was a country western guy. Uh, Roy Clark was one of his closest friends. And Roy sang yesterday uh, at, at Mickey's uh, service uh, after I delivered the eulogy. Bobby Richardson was part of it, his teammate. Then I delivered the eulogy, and, and Roy closed it out with a touching rendition of yesterday at Mickey's request. The other thing I remember about just spending time with Mickey, yeah, he wanted to talk baseball. One time, again, not to name drop, but to set the scene for you, um, Billy Crystal and I were having dinner with Mickey, and and Billy had grown up idolizing Mickey uh, just as I had. And at one point, he says, in that Oklahoma drawl, which I can't really imitate, you know, you little bleeps remember (laughs) all this stuff. And I did it, and I don't remember any of it. (laughs) Which is probably an exaggeration, but I got his point. The other thing he liked, he loved jokes. And I'm a pretty good joke teller. So he would always, when he saw me, say, do you have any new material? And I almost always did. And he delighted in that. And then sometimes if there would be a new person in the group, 
he'd want me to tell a joke he already knew. Tell him that one. Tell him this one. So that was the way into Mickey's heart, baseball and humor. Bob, do you have a, a go-to joke you could deliver right now? No, because the best jokes are all off-color. <laughs> even on a podcast, I'm not going to do that. Sometime, yeah. sometime over, over a beer, I, I'll, I'll give you two dozen. Oh, I look forward to that. You ever meet one of your sports or entertainment heroes, someone you've admired, and it just didn't go all that marvelous? <sighs> For me, Willie Mays didn't go well. I was lucky with Willie and have yeah. been lucky with Willie. Yeah. <laughs> uh, you know, I'm not dodging the question. I, I just can't think of one that went badly. Let me think. Uh you know, I've had a couple of interviews more recently, um, and I'm not going to name names. doesn't serve any purpose. Uh, but we're talking about with active players, right. in this case in football, um, who for whatever reason copped an attitude. And my thing is, hey, if you don't want to do the interview, don't do it. <laughs> if you sit down and you're going to be annoyed by perfectly good questions, <laughs> then take a hike. And actually there was one where, um, where I just concluded the interview. I said, look, uh, I, I've talked to hundreds and hundreds of people, many of them much more accomplished than you, and I've never had anyone cop an attitude like this. If you didn't want to do it, you shouldn't have shown up. Meanwhile, this whole crew, the lighting, the cameras, everything else, they're professionals, and you're wasting their time, so on their behalf, we're done. That actually happened once. What was the reaction? The guy said, okay. That's all he, all he said. He said, he said, he said okay, and, 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 got, and got up and left. It so what, no, big, no big demand. Maybe it, maybe it just caught him on a bad day. At what age does a young Bobby Quinlan Costas start to think, you know what, I could make a living doing this broadcasting thing? Well, I first thought I might like to do it when I was – 10, 11 years old. Um, I first thought I might have a chance to make a living at it when I was at Syracuse University, and they let the undergraduates be on the campus radio station almost right away. So I did my first broadcast when I was 18 years old, probably in October of 1970 during my freshman year. And while I still had a long way to go, uh, people told me that I was a little bit ahead of most of the other kids there who were working on the campus radio station and that if I worked at it, I had the potential to be good at it. Um, and by the time I was a senior at Syracuse, I'd landed a job while still in school. I'd landed a job doing uh, minor league hockey, the old Eastern Hockey League, the league that the Paul Newman movie Slapshot is based on. The Syracuse Blaze! Bu- yeah, the Syracuse Blazers. 30 bucks a game, $5 a day meal money on the road, and I had really no hockey background and I was able to figure it out pretty quickly, and people seemed to enjoy the broadcast. So at that point, I'm starting to think, maybe I can do okay at this. I didn't have any idea that what lay ahead would happen. There has to be a series of events, and things just kind of fall into place. Uh, but I, I did think by then that this was going to be my career. How did you? Can you tell the story on how you landed the gig at 22 years old as the voice of the St. Louis Spirits of the ABA? Well, a guy who had been my roommate at Syracuse, Roger Holstein, from Shaker Heights, Ohio, he had transferred after our sophomore year 
to Swarthmore in Pennsylvania. And we stayed in touch, but it was harder to stay in touch then. You couldn't text people or email them. So eventually I hear from him in the summer of 1974, and he tells me that his cousin, Harry Weltman from Cleveland, is the president of the Spirits of St. Louis, who had just come into existence. The Carolina Cougars moved to St. Louis and renamed themselves the Spirits. And he's gone to work. He was a, a basketball junkie. He played high school basketball. Um, he's gone to work uh, just as an adventure for this new team. So he's moved to St. Louis. And he tells me they haven't hired an announcer yet. Send the tape, and I'll make sure it's heard. So the only tape I had of a basketball game was one I had done as a sophomore on the campus radio station between Syracuse and Rutgers. And I listened to it. And it wasn't bad for a kid who was 20, but it certainly wasn't good enough to be on KMOX. And then I had an idea. I went to a fellow student who was more technologically advanced than me, which is to say almost anybody who's breathing. (laughs) And we listened to it, and we picked out about 20 possessions where the calls were good over the course of the whole game. And where necessary, we edited out the score to make it seem as if this was all a continuous sequence of plays. And then having picked the 18 or 20 that we thought were okay, I had him re-record it with the bass slightly up and the treble slightly down to make me sound a little older and more authoritative. And then I thought as a lark, I sent it off to my buddy Roger Holstein. It turns out that they had some 200 applicants for the job. Holstein put the tape on an old woolen sack tape recorder, a reel-to-reel thing, monstrous. You could get a hernia just picking one of these things up. And he put it on Harry Weltman's desk (laughs) while Weltman was out to lunch. And he queued it up, and when Weltman walked back into his office, this is literally true, he said, Harry, listen to this. And he pushed the button, and Harry listened to it and said, boy, that's pretty good. I'm going to send that over to KMOX. And then Jack Buck, who was the sports director, listened to it. And so, too, did the head of the station, Bob Hyland, whose grandson, Rob Hyland, now produces Sunday night football, the football night in America pregame stuff, and the Kentucky Derby uh, for NBC. So they listened to it, and I guess they narrowed it down to three or four out of the couple hundred, and I was one of them. They brought me in for an interview, uh, flew to St. Louis, met Jack Buck, whose opening comment to me, I was 22 and I looked like I was 11, his opening comment was, I have ties older than you, kid. <laughs> which, which made me feel very confident yeah. about my prospects. <laughs> so I, I, I don't know if it was that they saw the potential in me or I was willing to work cheaper than any of the other applicants. The, the first year salary was $11,000. And if I had to pay them 11000 to do it. I would have if I had 11000 at the time. And before I left town, thinking, you know, it's a long shot, I may never set foot in St. Louis again, I went to have dinner at Stan Musial's restaurant. Now, remember, this is 1974, and all I had was a hamburger. So the bill couldn't have been more than 10 bucks. And I left a tip. I didn't have any credit cards, so it was all cash. I left a tip of $3.31. You will know why. 
$3.31. You left right. It's a generous tip percentage-wise on a 9 or $10 tab, especially for a kid. Oh, wait a minute. That's uh, Was that Stan Musial's lifetime batting average? Bingo. You look at me. I'm a sports man. Uh, that's, uh, that's fantastic I got that. Three, I, I'm impressed. 331 Three singles, a quarter, a nickel, and a penny. <laughs> so I don't know what the waiter thought when, when they cleared the table and, and he picked up his tip. But that was my homage to Stan, thinking I may never set foot here again. And it turned out that St. Louis became, in effect, my hometown. That is absolutely amazing. I love that story. Okay, I want to be on every website in America after you tell the Marvin Barnes story, because it's a classic, but there's a lot of people out there who haven't heard it. Marvin Barnes, a player for the St. Louis Spirits of the old ABA. Yep. Give us a brief description and the Marvin Barnes story, Bob. I'm begging for it. Okay, we'll close with this. Marvin Barnes was a truly great college basketball player. He was the second player picked in 1974 in both the NBA draft and the ABA draft behind only Bill Walton. And his Providence team, which included Ernie DiGregorio, had gone to the Final Four that year. That was the year that Walton made 21 of 22 shots in the final against Larry Keenan and Memphis State. So anyway... Barnes was a genuinely terrific player, but he was uh, also, shall we say, a colorful and um, erratic character. So it would take a long time to list all of his escapades, so we'll just uh, focus in on the one you're asking about. We play the Kentucky Colonels in Louisville and lose, as we usually did to them on the road. And this is before teams traveled by charter. So we gather at the airport early the next morning for the commercial flight back to St. Louis. And the traveling secretary, who was also the trainer, kind of a shoestring budget situation, passes out the itinerary. And it says, TWA, flight 305, depart Louisville, 8 a.m., arrive St. Louis, 7.56. Now, Marvin has the itinerary in his hands, and he beckons me over. So I walk over to him. And he drapes an arm around my shoulder, and from more than a foot above me, he was six foot nine, he says, bro, bro, do you see this? I said, yeah. He goes, well, I don't know about you, but as for me, I am not getting on any time machine. (laughs) See, now, a lot of people, when they hear that story, think that Marvin was confused. He wasn't confused. He was smart. He was self-destructive, sadly, but he was smart, and he knew he was saying something funny, and I did too. Absolutely great way to end this. Bob, I can't tell you how much I appreciate the time today. I thank you for your extra time and your kindness, and we'll talk to you down the road. Thank you so much for spending some time here on the Sports Lodge podcast, my friend. Thanks, Roger. I really enjoyed it. Take care. The Sports Lodge with Roger Lodge was brought to you by the Global Story Network.